So I want to congratulate you on coming out on this terrible winter's day with the normal storm coming our way. Sorry about that, but when you've lived in Wisconsin, you know, it's like, and you've watched little ladies come to church on a Sunday night in the middle of a snowstorm, you realize, come on, guys, it's just rain, okay? Don't panic. It won't kill you. Well, it might, but still. Anyway, let's pray together. Father God, thank you for the clarity of your word, and I pray that you'd help us to hear it with that clarity today. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Several years ago, a professor up at University of California up in San Francisco developed a system to help people recover from heart, uh, heart attacks. And what he wanted to do was not help them just to recover, but he wanted to rebuild their hearts so that they were able to get stronger afterwards. So he came up with a special diet that was designed to do that, to help them recover and then to be able to build stronger heart muscles. And in order to help people keep on his diet, he put them into groups so that as groups of people, they then began to eat his diet. And the the idea was that the peer pressure would keep them on the diet, that they wouldn't move off the diet. So he was very happy with with his idea and kept track on them. And sure enough, the people in his studies were people who were recovering from heart disease and who were living longer than the people in the general population. And he wanted to be sure that he had his diet correct, so he did research on the people in the groups. And then he discovered something shocking. They weren't keeping to his diet. They were going back to eating whatever they wanted to. They went back to smoking. They went back to drinking, whatever they'd been doing beforehand that was harmful. Many of them just went back to that, but nonetheless, their hearts were getting better and they were living longer. And so he realized, all right, there's something wrong with this system. So he went back and he restudied. Why were these people healing and living longer? And he discovered that what was causing them to live longer was not his wonderful diet, but the groups. He wrote a book called Love and Survival. And in this, he, sh- he shares with us this concept, that it was within these groups with the support of people who knew you, knew what you were going through, that people's lives were extended. So he did more research, and he discovered that that is one of the most powerful things everywhere in our culture. Lonely people, people who are by themselves, people who are divorcees, people who are widows and widowers, people who live by themselves die quicker than people who are in families. People who live by themselves but who are in groups generally will live longer. He says this, I'm not aware of any other factor in medicine, not diet, not smoking, not exercise, not stress, not genetics, not drugs, not surgery, that has greater impact on our quality of life, incidents of illness and premature death from all causes other than being in supportive groups. And in fact, I love what uh, John Ortberg tells us. He says, it is better to eat Twinkies with good friends than to eat broccoli alone. (laughs) It is not good for human beings to be alone. Do you remember Adam, created as the perfect man, placed in the perfect environment? He had the most perfect boss. He had the most perfect work to do in the most perfect world. And God looked at Adam and he said, it is not good for man to be alone. 
I will make a helper suitable for him. We are made in the image of God, and God is a God who lives in community. God is a God who lives in a relationship of love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And made as the image of God, we're made to be people who are in relationships. But what happened is when we rebelled against God, we severed our relationship with him, and we also endangered our relationship with one another. Do you remember what Adam and Eve did after they rebelled against God? They went and hid in the garden because they knew their relationship with God had been severed, had been affected. But they also made coverings for themselves. And we look at them and go, why? You two have been naked in each other's presence all along. What in the world would make you suddenly make coverings for yourselves? And the reason they did that is because now they suddenly realized, you can use me. You can abuse me. Isn't that amazing? They had just come out of that perfect state, and immediately they knew that something had gone wrong in their relationship with God, terribly wrong, and something had gone terribly wrong in their relationship with one another. And that is why Jesus, when he came to earth, came to reconcile us to God, but he came to reconcile us to one another as well. And as you study what Jesus was teaching us in uh, the, the, his last evening when he was with his disciples, the one thing he came back to over and over and over again was a single command. He repeated it several times on that last night. And he said it to these men who needed to hear this. You are to love one another as I have loved you. And then he added a statement to that. The world will know that you are my representatives when they see the love you have for one another. And so Jesus came to reconcile us to God, yes, but he also came to reconcile us to one another. And these men who had been with him for three years needed to get this really quickly. Because even as they came into the upper room, they were debating, they were arguing about who was going to be first in the kingdom of God, who was going to have the, the place of highest priority. And Jesus taught them repeatedly that night something that we still today need to learn. That God has given us a power to reconcile with one another that exceeds anything that human beings can do on their own. And that power has not only the influence on our own lives, we live longer, <laughs> but it is the power to which God has hooked the gospel. The world will know that we are his disciples when they see this kind of love expressed among us. But as we're studying John chapter 15, the one thing we cannot lose sight of is that there is only one source of the kind of love we're being told to, to express to one another. We do not have this capacity within us. Only God is the source of this kind of love. John writes this, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Now notice that. The only people who can love are those who have been born of God and who know God. The kind of love we're being, being told to express to one another has a supernatural origin. It does not reside inside of us personally. It comes into us in the person of the Holy Spirit. He gives us this capacity. And he says, Who does not love, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, it's important to understand that. He's saying that the essence of God is love. It's not just that God feels loving things. It's not just that God does loving things, but that God in his essence is love. If we could evaporate God, if we could annihilate God completely, love would go as well. Because love and God are inextricably tied together. 
The Bible never says, Bible says that God is merciful, yes, but it never says that God is mercy. See the difference? God, is, God exercises justice, but it never goes to that point of, of, of putting justice in the same category. God is love. That is the essence of, what, of who God is. How do you define this love? We can't ever define it completely, but we can move toward it. Here's Gregory Boyd's definition. To love is to ascribe unsurpassable worth to those to whom God ascribes unsurpassable worth. Unsurpassable worth means that this person is absolutely, phenomenally, completely worthwhile. And there's nothing that could be added to this person that would make them more worthy of love. And God has given, ascribed to us unsurpassable worth by sending his son to die for us. God says every single human life is of unsurpassable worth. So that's why. Sorry to preach, but I watched Governor Como this week. Surrounded by celebrating people. Hallelujah. We can now kill babies all the way up until just the moment before birth. We can kill babies. And I watched women. I, that, that blows my mind. Shut up, women. Don't preach. Women standing there. Happy that now we can murder babies. And they turned what, one of the buildings in New York City. Turned it pink to celebrate. That now we can murder babies. The unsurpassable worth of every human life starts at the moment of conception and carries all the way through until death. Do you see the steps we're taking? Because now they're going, you can kill a baby right up until one minute before death and birth. But now they're also saying, one minute after birth, you can also let that baby die. Do you see where we're going? Because now we go to the other end of life. And when your life is no longer worthy to society, we'll start taking your life. We are headed there and we will not be able to turn back. Okay, so to love is to ascribe unsurpassable worth to those whom God has ascribed unsurpassable worth, which is every single human being. And God didn't just give us descriptions, uh, de, um, definition of love. He described it. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. God didn't just say, I love you. He took our sin upon himself, and then he died in our place. That's how much and how clearly God declared his love for us. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Okay, are you tracking with me here? That when we express that kind of love for one another, what happens is that it becomes evident that God is here to us and it becomes evident to the world outside. And that's why Jesus told us, I'm summoning you, and he uses the word friendship, I'm summoning you into a divine friendship with one another and with the world. And it's interesting that, you know, I'm summoning you to love. He says that over and over. But he knew that some, sometimes we just go to sleep. We hear the word love. Oh, okay, we can love you. Yeah, love, love. He said, all right, let's switch it just a little bit. Let me give it another spin. He says, my command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. I don't know about you, but sometimes I don't want to lay down my schedule for you. <laughs> to lay down your life. For one's friends. Jesus said, oh, you want to understand the extent 
to which the kind of love I'm calling you to, it'd be the love where you would be willing to take that punishment, to die because of it. And then he says this, you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. In the courtroom of those days, there were certain people who were called the friend of the king. The friend of the king could safely walk into the presence of the king without being summoned. If somebody else walked into the presence of the king without being summoned, they would assume he's an assassin and he would be taken out. But those who had the status of being the friend of the king could walk into his presence. I even read, walk into his bedchamber. You could go into his room in the morning. And if you were declared to be a friend of the king, you had that kind of access to him. And then when you came into his presence, whenever you came into his presence, you were his confidant. You were his friend. I asked our group this week, come, come up with words that describe this, our study, Bible study. They said, you're his amigo. Okay. When you obey Jesus Christ, you become one of his amigos. You become one of his team. You become one of his brothers, the people to whom he says, I open my heart. I open my, my, my agenda. I bring you all the way into my confidence, confidence, and I share with you what I'm doing. Abraham was the only other person who's called friend of God in the Old Testament time. And God at one time said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? No, he's my friend. Therefore, I'm going to include him into my life. Okay, so are we tracking here? To love somebody means to give them this kind of, this kind of friendship where you bring them into your life. You allow them access to your life. Why do we go to a place where we can drink coffee alone in the presence of other people? Because we have that hunger and fear. Notice that? There's that hunger. I want to be around People. So Starbucks, $4 for a cup of coffee. Are you nuts? It costs them four cents to make that cup of coffee. Probably even less. I don't know. But we pay $4 for a cup of coffee so we can sit alone in a room with other people. When movie theaters, when, when color TV came out, they said movie theaters are going to go away. Everybody's going to stay home and just watch movies on TV. Instead, the opposite has happened. Bigger movie theaters were built after Color TV came out. There's one just down the road here with 18 theaters in there. Why? Because we like to watch a movie in the presence of other people. But don't you dare talk to me. <laughs> Isn't that true? You go to Starbucks and you can get your cup of coffee. You can't go over and just sit down at somebody else's table and say, Hi, my name is Raymond. They'll be going, ooh. And the problem is we need people. We want people. We want that connection. But we also are terrified. And so we keep them at a distance. And that's why the church has to be a place where you've got that kind of grace. So that when you find out the terrible things that I have done, you don't reject me. When you find out the terrible person I am, you don't turn away from me and avoid me. You realize, hey, I'm a sinner too. And it's a place where the door is open so that people can be themselves. Because only when we can be ourselves like that can we enter into this kind of divine friendship? It doesn't mean you open up and tell everybody all your, your, your skeletons, okay? Do it easily. Do it gently and not all the details. But we want to be able to move toward one another and not be afraid that we'll be rejected. He said, you do not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you, might, you that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. 
And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. So he keeps coming back to that command. And so picking up on that thing, that, that concept of divine friendship, he says, I'm going to bring you into this relationship with me where I no longer call you servants. I'm going to call you my amigos, my friends, my gang, my tribe. I'm going to bring you into that intimacy with me. I want you to do the same thing with one another. And we go back to John chapter 13, which was taught to them the same night in the upper room. Okay? He said this, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Read that with me. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So, first thing we need to camp on is, as I have loved you. These men had experienced, for three years now, that love of Jesus Christ. So, they, they had experienced it to some degree. They were going to learn it way more once the Spirit came upon them. But they had already touched upon that. His love for them was volitional. He chose them. And that's one of the key things about the kind of love that the Bible is calling us to do. And that it is based upon a decision not upon the, 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 the attractiveness or the worthiness of the person we're going to love. See, normally, we're capable of erotic love. Somebody sexually attractive to you, you can move toward that person very easily, and you've got no credit for doing that, okay? You're just wired that way, okay? That's, that's not what the kind of love we're talking about. There's phileo love, from which we get the word Philadelphia. Phileo love is family love where we're born into a family, and because of the, the, the care and protection we get there, we easily develop that kind of love. That's not the kind of love we're being taught to do. The word here is agape, which is a, was a Greek word that was seldom used, so the writers of the New Testament grabbed hold of it and gave it meaning, filled it with meaning. And it starts with the decision to love. The best illustration I ever found is the difference between an M&M candy and a peanut M&M. Can you see them in your mind eye? I should have brought some this morning. They're both sweet, yeah. They're both sweet. But the peanut M&M has got something solid in the middle. And that's what agape love is like. There's a decision, a choice in the middle. I make the decision that empowered by God, I am going to love so-and-so. I don't feel it yet. The feeling may come, but I make it on a decision. So it was volitional. It was sacrificial. It's interesting that husbands are told to love their wives with the same kind of sacrificial love that Christ had for the church. And I think there we can, we can easily expand it to understand the, the, all of our relationships. That sacrificial means that I'm willing to take harm because I'm willing to love you. I'm willing to be offended because I want to love you. I'm willing to be somebody who, who in some way or another pays a price in loving you. I go that extra step. It's unconditional. No strings attached. The, the, the whole point about God's love for us, he loved us while we were yet sinners. He loved us when we were still in rebellion against him. And that love remains unconditional. And then it's unstoppable. That love that will not let me go. These disciples, you could imagine, by that three years of training them, and on that last night, they're still arguing about who's going to be number one. 
You can imagine Jesus going, oh, I'm done. Okay, I'm going to start again. Let me go find some better guys to work with because every single one of you wants to be number one. What in the world is wrong with you guys? (laughs) He wouldn't have ever found any other guys that he could have worked with at all. He had that unstoppable love for them. So it was the, the, the reason it was new is because it was, had that kind of quality to it. It's new in focus. We're to love one another. Now, watch this with me. Let me get out of here just quickly so I can do it. We're told, how, how did Jesus sum up the Ten Commandments? Do you remember that? Uh, they challenged him. What's the number one commandment? What was the number one commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. Okay, that one doesn't go away. He said, but the second is like unto the first. And that was, love your neighbor as yourself. So those two commands are in place. They don't go away. He adds a new one. And the new one is that we're to love one another. And it's specific because he's he's got an enormous purpose for it. He wants to give to us the gift of that kind of support, that kind of love, that kind of connection with one another that we lost in the Garden of Eden. He wants to restore it to us, and he gives us the power to do it. It's new in degree, as I have loved you, and then it's new in purpose, that all men will know that you are my disciples. How will the world know that Jesus is real? He said it's very simple. When they look at the church, they will see incredible, unbelievable love expressed among the members of the church. How are we doing? (laughs) You look back through history, and what have we decided rather is the mark of the church? Doctrine. We believe these doctrines. And if you don't believe them, even if you say you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're not welcome in our fellowship. Isn't that stupid? Isn't that the most amazing thing? You don't believe in our doctrine, therefore we're not going to fellowship with you. I was invited years ago to, 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 to speak to a, a church and they, to a group. It was actually a weekend conference. And then just the week before, the pastor called me and he said, which Bible do you use? And I was like, ah, oh, I know where you're going. They were a King James Version only church. The only version of the Bible you could use if you put up in their church was the King James Version. I said, I can use the King James Version. He said, that's not what I'm asking you. What Bible do you use? I said, the New International Version. He said, we're done. Thank you. You are uninvited to come and speak to us. And the world goes, oh, I get it. True believers read only the King James Version of the Bible. It's like, ah, okay. He says, the world will know, will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Gregory Boyd says this, God leverages the credibility of his salvation on Christ's disciples loving as Christ loved them. Isn't that amazing? He hooks the validity of the gospel to our expressing that kind of love among us. We read this earlier, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal, which was in a very irritating religious noise. That's what happened in the, the pagan temples in those days. There would be this clanging Symbols that would be clashing. And he says, it's an irritating, horrible noise. You need to hear what it would be like. Because it's really irritating. All right, this sounds pretty. It's like this. Okay. So, our love for one another, not our holiness. 
We are true believers in Jesus Christ. We are holy. Not that. Not our doctrines. Not our buildings. Not our worship services. Not our... Actually, sermons are okay. But... (laughs) Not our church size. He said, the world will know you're my disciples. Not by these kind of things. The world will know that you're my disciples when they see this kind of supernatural love happening among you. Now understand this. It's not going to happen accidentally. There was this um, radio station in Kansas City when I was a college student that had this call sign. It said this, the sounds of love don't just happen. You have to make them. And so this kind of love doesn't just happen. We have to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, go that extra mile all of the time. How do we do that? Well, love is produced by abiding in Christ. Jesus said this. He said, remain in me and I also, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. The kind of love we're being called to, to express to one another is not just simply depending upon our own affection, depending upon our own ability. The kind of love we're called to to go is is radical. It's way beyond the normal. It means that we have to understand that God wants us to do everything to protect the unity of the church through the bond of the Spirit by expressing that kind of love for one another. And the way it shows up is when you're irritated at somebody else in the church, when you're annoyed with somebody else, when they won't do what you tell them to do, when they won't do what you want them to do, when they do their own, when whatever it is, when there's somebody else who's not doing what you want them to do to make you feel comfortable and happy and, and, and elevated, then you get mad at them, reject them. That's when this kind of love becomes critical for us because that's when that kind of love becomes something only we can express because of the power of Jesus Christ. And we understand this, that when we love one another that way, we help one another to grow because that kind of love motivates us. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Notice that? That as we express this kind of love toward one another, we help one another grow. We help one another mature. And we spur one another on toward love and good deeds. That means when we watch and catch somebody in our, in our church who's not expressing that kind of love, we don't look the other way. Our job is to go to them and challenge them. Love this person. And then what happens is when we're expressing that kind of love to one another, we're encouraged. We're given that impetus to help us to grow and to mature in Christ. Okay, so, does this make you uncomfortable? Because it should. And if you're too comfortable, maybe we have to start the sermon at the beginning. All right, so let's do that. Dr. Dean Ornish, (laughs) understand this, that the kind of love we're being called to express is way beyond what the normal kind of love is this world could possibly uh, conjure up in our own strength. It comes from the Spirit of God within us who helps us as we grow in our relationship with Him. Our desire as, as a church is to grow a family of people who are becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. 
And it's not just our desire. I believe that's what a church is supposed to be doing. That as we meet together, as we study together, as we worship together, everything we do is to be oriented toward the fact that we are, God wants us to become more and more just like Jesus Christ. That's the fruit he wants to see. It starts with a life-receiving relationship with Jesus Christ. We cannot save ourselves. We must believe in him. But nor can we change ourselves. We must continue to receive life from him so that as his life flows into us, it transforms us, it changes us. And then we, have, we develop a life-motivating relationship with one another. Church is not just simply to be a place that you go on Sunday morning to fill that gap in your day because there's nothing good on TV yet. Church is supposed to be the place where we go, where we live, not just on Sunday morning, the environment in which we live, so that God can shape us and change us because he's got something way more important to do in this world than for us just to live out our lives till we retire. His important job is to build his kingdom. And the way he does it is he brings us into a life-giving, life-motivating relationship with each other. And then we'll see next week a life-giving relationship with the people of our world. And that's what the communion table is designed to do. It's designed to bring us back to that place where we focus on the fact that our life comes from Jesus in salvation, that our life comes from Jesus in every single moment of our lives. Did you know that it wasn't until 1,500 years after he instituted the Lord's table that the church began to argue about, is the body and blood of Christ truly the body and blood? Is, is Jesus present in the bread? Is he not present in the bread? For 15 centuries, the church just said, ah, we do communion. Why do we do communion? Because it's a meal. And actually, it's supposed to be a meal. First centuries, they just ate a meal together. And as part of the meal, when they were eating a meal together, they would remember Jesus. They'd break bread and they'd drink the wine in remembrance of Jesus. We have reduced it just for, what's the word, efficiency sake, to little pieces of bread and little cups of wine. And that's okay. It's acceptable as long as we don't lose sight of the fact that when we come to this table, it's to remind ourselves of the fact that Jesus is with us. Jesus is among us and that he's called us to live in this life-receiving relationship with him and in this life-motivating relationship with one another as we grow. And so we're going to open the communion table here in just a moment. The way we're going to do it today is I'm going to ask you to circle around the back, receive the bread at the back table, and eat the bread right away. It's a statement of, I have, I have just as I take this bread into my mouth, I've taken Jesus into my life. If you've done that, then join us and do that. And so just eat the bread there. Then come down to the front and we'll serve you the cup. And we ask you to keep the cup and we're going to drink together uh, when we come up front. Okay? So that's how we're going to do communion. I just want to also, you, remember, you may remember that today is Super Bowl Sunday. According to Dr. Dean Ornish, if you're watching the Super Bowl with friends, you can eat anything you like. It's not going to kill you because you're in, oh, isn't that great? Isn't that just, <laughs> you can answer that yourself, okay. The Apostle Paul tells us that before we come to the table, we should examine ourselves so we don't treat it as, as a throwaway, as, as something, as a, just an empty little ritual, but that we come to the table fully aware that Jesus is our host at this table and we come to share together at the table in his presence. So let's just prepare ourselves.
you've never yet accepted Christ into your life, if you've never put your trust and your faith in him, you can do it right now. It's just a transaction between you and him. Where you simply say, Jesus, I don't fully understand this. But I hear that you took the punishment for my sins. And that if I believe in you, you're capable of forgiving me my sins and adopting me as a child of God. And Jesus, I want to come into God's family. So right now, I resign as God of my life and I ask you, Jesus, to become my God. And one of the reasons for this table is to bring us to that place where we make sure that we have cleared our fellowship, our connection, our divine friendship with Jesus. Which means just to confess anything that we need to confess. That we can be cleansed and that we can enjoy fully this divine friendship. And Spirit of God, it is you who, who wrote these words. That if we believe in Jesus, we have everlasting life. And you wrote the words that said that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so by faith, we believe in you. And by faith, we accept your forgiveness. And we come to the table now to join with you and your people in this sacred moment. We come in Christ's name. Amen.